0: Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the Senior Pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message.
1: Who's called in Melbourne? <laughs> it's just an honesty test that I run before we talk. Uh, It's freezing, but it's going to get hot very, very shortly. I feel it in my bones. (laughs) Um, We're going to speak from a passage that I believe has uh, a real parallel correspondence uh, to where we are as a city, perhaps as a world, most importantly as a church Uh, that that I pray would be applicable to every single one of us, we're going to open up to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Please, if you have your Bible, and it is a good thing to bring your Bible to church, book of Judges, chapter 6. Book of Judges is the seventh book of the Old Testament. The first five belong to Moses, number six to Joshua. Number seven is the book of Judges. And we're going to read starting at verse 25. It says this, now, it came to pass the same night. Now, when it says something like that, we have to wonder okay, what happened during the day? And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in just a few moments because this is about an encounter that the Lord God had with a man by the name of Gideon, told him some stuff during the day, but the Lord decided we ain't finished and would not let the next day roll on until he had one more very important thing to say and do with Gideon. So it says that the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of his rock. Lord said to him, you make sure that the idol in the backyard is dealt with. And instead of the idol, that there's going to be an altar built to the one true God in its place. So Gideon in verse 27, took 10 men from among the servants and did as the Lord had said to him, because he feared his father's household and the men of a city too much to do it by day. He did it by night. And I just want us to reflect for a moment that it's totally okay with God that you do God's will afraid. <laughs> God doesn't mind you doing His will with reluctance and trepidation. God doesn't mind. You don't have to feel Nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? Feelings are great followers, not great leaders. Don't be led by how you feel. Be led by the Word of God. Do it afraid, my friend. So he goes at night, does the will of the Lord. We're going to jump down to verse 31. What happened between what we just said and verse 31 is that the men of his countrymen came to kill him because they saw that the altar had been destroyed. The altar to the false god and a new altar had been erected. So they came to his father's house. A man bought a name of Joash who himself was an idol worshipper. But look what happened starting at verse 31. But Joah said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death in the morning. If he is a God, he's hairy enough, ugly enough to defend himself. Because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jurabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down the altar. All of a sudden, Gideon gets a new name as the one who tears down false gods. That's pretty cool. Hey, I wouldn't mind that name. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Vegemites and the cellulites and the people of the earth gathered together. And they crossed over and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abyssinites gathered to him. And then there were other tribes, Asher and Zebulon, and, and other tribes of Israel gathered to him. Here's what I want to say to us this encounter begins where God. Begins to have a conversation with Gideon and one of the first things that the Lord does with Gideon in the book of Judges chapter 6 and verse 12 is he calls him a mighty man of valour. He greets him as a mighty man of valour. Now Gideon is shocked. He's thinking, Lord, you've got the wrong address. I, I am the least in my father's house and, and, and we're the least, our family's the least in the tribe of Manasseh. God, you've got this all wrong. And the Lord does not like it when we have a false identity. So the Lord says to him, it's not what people say about you. It's not about your history. It's not even about what you think of yourself. If I say that's who you are, that's who you are. The Lord says to him, a thousand voices on the street have to be dispelled by one voice from the royal palace. Can I tell you something? You'll never live above the opinion of yourself. That's why the Lord wants you to believe the truth about you. And the truth could only come from one source. Not men's opinions. Not even what you think you know about yourself. So God starts this conversation with Gideon by recalibrating his identity. That is an important conversation. But then he goes on in verse 14 of the same chapter and he says to him, Go in this might of yours, for you shall surely save Israel. See, it's one thing for me to know who I am. It's another thing for me to know what God has destined me to. So God speaks a word over his future. Son, daughter, daughter. I've dispatched you from heaven for such a time as this. You are not an accident. You are not somebody who's living here for consumption. You are dispatched with a mission from heaven. Every single person under the sound of my voice in this 11am service that applies to you. God has sent you to this earth with a mission from heaven. So the Lord says to him, listen, listen, Satan wants to scare you out of doing God's will. He wants you to live under a low roof of fear. Wants you to live running with the culture, pecking with the chickens while God's called you to soar with the eagles. God's got something else in mind. So that's a good thing. God speaks a word of faith over him, but God says there is one more problem. I will not let today finish until we talk about it. There's idols in the backyard. We got to deal with the idols. Who knows when we talk about revival, revival is about the reinstatement of the worship of God. The Lord will not be worshipped alongside false gods. The Lord will not set up an altar next to the altar of a false god in a heart in a church, in a city. It ain't going to happen. That's why when he appeared to Jacob in the book of Genesis, tells him, build an altar to the Lord your God. The first thing that Jacob does, asks everyone around him, says, put away the foreign gods from among you. Put away foreign, because they can't exist side by side. Does the same thing with Elijah. Elijah calls all the people of God and he says, hey, listen. If Baal is God, worship him. But if the Lord is God, worship him. Do not falter between the two opinions. You can't have loyalties to two opposing forces that are going in two different directions. It will either be the idol of a rival God or the altar of the one true God. That's why Jesus taught in the book of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. Be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Meaning, you cannot have two gods that code well. Let me take it a little bit further. Do you know the first 20% of the Ten Commandments is about dealing with false gods? The first two out of the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, commandment number one goes like this in the book of Exodus, chapter 20 and verse 3. The Lord said, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other God before me. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, you know sometimes how we interpret that? You shall have no other God before me. It sounds like it's a ladder, and rung one, rung two, rung three, rung four, rung five. And as long as you make sure that God's top God, you, you can have all these other things, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. You shall have no other God before me. That's not what the verse says. The Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, meaning you shall have no other God in my presence. I am not a top God. I am the only God. There shall be none other before me. None shall occupy my presence. Now I know that, especially if you're visiting here, you're saying, look, the preacher's spitting everywhere and the preacher's all hot, calm your socks, preacher. Because we ain't, we ain't, Idol worshippers. Why are you talking like that? I mean, mean, who got up this morning and offered something to Artemis or who offered to to Moloch or Baal or who who got their kids and threw them in the fire as much as some of us would like to do them. But no, none of us have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Right? Like Old Testament stuff, isn't it? Okay. Let's go, Bible, a bit. Yeah. All right. First John chapter 5 and verse 21. The apostle John says, My beloved, keep yourselves from idols. That's in the New Testament. Yeah. What's he talking about when he says, Keep yourselves from idols? what, what, what Amen. That's the last thing he actually says, right? And then it Amen. <laughs> so be it. Amen, God. Yeah. Make sure that there's no idols in our life. Okay, cool. John? Who knows the Apostle Paul is a little bit more forthright, right? John was the Apostle of love. You know, if you want somebody to punch you with a glove, but it's wrapped in velvet, you go to John. But if you want somebody just to tell you the truth straight up and down and you leave bleeding and then cover, you know, you go to Paul. Paul had something to say on this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 13 and 14. We love and misquote verse 13. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. Right, amen. It's so good, right? You with me? This is really good. This is where Christians get up on their seats and they wave their hacky. You know, God's not going to allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. God's going to draw the line in the sand and say, devil, thus far and no further. <laughs> right, we love it. Come on, and is it true? 100% true. Yeah. Can I just get us to read the next verse? Come on. Verse 14. Therefore, that means as a result. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. What Paul was saying is, (laughs) is that when we let certain temptations get in our heart, fill our heart, take a seat in our heart that belongs to the Lord, they become fortresses for the demonic. They become idols in our love. They become a new love that doesn't belong there. They become a rival God. So he says, therefore, flee idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Look, if you haven't, Got it yet, Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 3. Ezekiel says it better than anyone. The Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, these men have built up idols in their hearts. He says to him, an idol is not a geographical outward thing. It's not a statue. It's what's going on in the heart that God calls idolatry. That's the idolatry of the New Testament. The idolatry of the New Testament is inside my heart. I am beginning to value someone or something. Prioritise and seek someone or something more than God. It's an invasion of a rival God. Do you know New Testament idols begin to take a controlling spot in your affection? Affection turns into adoration and the centre of your heart begins to shift. Begins to shift. What you're living for begins to shift. What you wake up for begins to shift. Hey, what wakes you up in the morning? Don't say my bladder. What wakes you up in the morning? Begins to shift. It takes a controlling position. That's how you know... It takes a controlling position in your thinking. It takes a controlling position in what you live for. It can take a controlling position in your motivation. It becomes central to why you wake up in the morning, how you pursue your day, how you spend your money. It takes a controlling position. Can I let us know something, all of us humans, every single person in this auditorium today and every single person who'll be listening to this later in the week and in weeks to come, can I say to you, every single one of us is designed to live for something. You live for something. I live for something. Today, the Lord, the Holy Spirit is challenging the church. What do you live for? If I live for my own happiness... If I live for my own endeavour, if I live for my own pursuit, I am my idol. That's what the book of Romans chapter 1 says. That the forsaken, the creator, and then the made images like the creature. And it begins with the image of man. The number one idol is ourselves. But God said, you shall have no other God before me. It's not God plus wrath, it's God alone. We all live for something. You know the whole issue with Abraham and Isaac that we've read about and spoken about in church a million times? That was it. That was the Lord putting his finger on it. Who knows idols come in all kinds of shapes and sizes? Do you know, and I'm going to share this with you because out of my own faults in my journey, and there's plenty of those, Out of the amount of times that my heart fled to an idol. And so I'm going to speak to you out of that, but I'm also going to speak to you out of some of the things that I've observed as we Christians journey in God. I want you to know do you know how many Christians live for romantic relationships? They love God, like God's there. They come to church every Sunday. They read their Bibles. They love it. But they actually live for romantic relationships. Do you know how many Christians live for their career? Do you know how many Christians are deceived and are living for beauty and health? Do you know how many Christians live for achievement? Do you know how many Christians in ministry live for the ministry? Hello. Hello. Live for the master, not the ministry. An idol becomes something that gives you a source that is not God. It becomes the source of your significance. It becomes the source of your fulfillment. It becomes the source of your purpose. It becomes the source of your identity. When people ask you, who are you? You tell them, I am the owner of this business. Hello, you are not the owner of this. That is not you. You have it. It doesn't have you. And that's what the Lord noticed in this whole thing about Abraham and Isaac. He noticed that God gave him a beautiful gift. Who knows that Isaac was the gift of God in Abraham's life. But Abraham's centre started to shift. He'd wake up in the morning, he was no longer running to God and going, Lord, oh, I'm so grateful that you wake me up this morning so I can see your face, I'm running to your face. You're my number one, you are my everything. No, nah, he was running into the tent next door going, how's the boy doing? Is he good? Oh, look at him, isn't he adorable? Now, do you think that God was a sadist? God wasn't a sadist. Do you think that God didn't want him to love his son? God wanted him to love his son. But you know what God was saying? God was saying you need to reorder your priority. Who knows? Who knows that sometimes it takes a situation to know that there's an idolatrous person in your life. Takes a situation, doesn't it, sometimes? That there's an idolatrous thing that's crept in that we need to sift out. Now, you know, the most deceptive thing about New Testament idols, the most deceptive, is that they're not bad things. Do you know if they were bad things, us Christians are cluey. We're shrewd bunch. We're so shrewd, right? Kill it. We're killing it. Right? We got this thing. We got this thing figured out called life, right? Push, push. Jesus, help us, God. They're not bad things. A matter of fact, open up with me to the book of Luke chapter 14. Have a look at this. Book of Luke chapter 14. This is Jesus teaching. He is teaching disciples. He talks about how the kingdom of heaven is like a man who threw a supper and invited so many guests. And He said to them, come for all things are now ready. Look what happens in verse 18. They all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground. Stop there, stop there, stop there. First bloke says, I bought a piece of ground. I've got to go see it. By the way, he's invited to a supper. I don't know who checks out a ground that night, but that's irrelevant. (laughs) Let's let's get to the main issue. It's property. So this guy's got property. Is property a bad thing? Come on, church, you know to say yes or no. Come on, let me hear you don't be shy there's no wrong or right I just want to hear from you okay is property a bad thing no No. I'm so glad that you got that theology down power no property is a good thing God can give you property right don't be shy if you've got property God gives you property it's all good The, the, the inheritance in the old testament was a whole bunch of property that's all good In the New Testament, God wants to bless you with property because the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. He wants to give you a little bit. It's all good. He loves to share his stuff. You know what I mean? He's not a hoarder. He wants to give it to you. It's all good. Right, it's good, right? It's good. Okay. I can't come and it's good. Okay. The next guy had me excused. The other said, I've got five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I don't know who test drives Oxen at night, but again, irrelevant, irrelevant. That's his business. Obviously, he's got oxen for a business and all of that. Is there anything wrong with business? The Lord is the one who gave you business. The Lord loves your business. The Lord's favour in the name of Jesus is on your business. Your business is a gift from God. Your brain that knows how to run that business is a gift from God And don't you let Satan touch it. It belongs to you, ain't God. God gave you all things to enjoy. Enjoy it. Cool. It's a good thing. Now, the last guy is the guy that cracks me up. Have have a look at this next guy. Come on. Next guy. This guy says, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. (laughs) I
0: love it.
1: I love it. Dude. Dude. Take your wife out to a supper. Somebody else is paying. Oh, the heaps of wine. It's all on the house. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. Is having a wife a good thing? Yeah, most of the time. It's a good thing. Right? (laughs) Jesus. Okay, it's a good thing. Who who finds a wife finds a good thing. <laughs> where am I sleeping tonight, Lord? <laughs> oh my God, help. Um, a wife is a good thing. Biblically, it's a good thing, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing, the Bible says. Yeah. So you walk around and say, hey, you're my good thing. Is it a good thing? Okay. What's Jesus teaching? Please hear this. Jesus is teaching the church this. When a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. It ain't about the business. It ain't about the property. It ain't about the relationship. They're all good gifts from God. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Because it stops everything kingdom on your life. And, and, and that is not the will of God. That is not what God will have with your life. God doesn't want material possessions to have you. He wants you to have them. God will not have a rival. God, I've got a few questions to ask us and I pray that they wouldn't be limited to these questions but that we would reflect with the Holy Spirit around what's going on in our hearts Let me ask, is there anything at the moment more important to you than God? Let me ask, is there anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination and your passion more than God? You want to know what that looks like? When you're not busy, what does your mind default to? Is there anything that has become more fundamental to your happiness, meaning, or identity more than God? Is there anything that you look to give to you that which only God can give you? And maybe he's a really important one. What are you most afraid of losing that if you lost it, you would feel like life isn't worth living? That usually helps with going, ooh, ouch, something has gone out of whack. See, when you live with God and the Lord God is God, not a top God, but the only God, you will feel the loss of all sorts of stuff but your life goes on because they ain't your life. Colossians 3, 4, Paul says, when Christ who is our life appears, for a Christian, my life is Jesus and no one else. There is no rival. Lose what you may. If I can put it to you this way, Jesus is worth everything you're afraid of losing. I encourage you this week, do a profit and loss statement. Genuinely, I mean that. I I do that. Genuinely, I promise you. I actually do that to check my heart on a regular basis. Genuinely, in my devotion, I put Jesus on one side of the equation. I draw a line and I put everything in my life that I value and prioritise. And then I always come to the conclusion, Jesus is worth everything I am afraid of losing. That can go if it needs to. That can go if it needs to. That can go if it needs to in order to keep Jesus as my God. Uh Uh-huh. So we come now to the point where, okay, Lord, how do I dismantle a rival God? Because God is not just telling us, how do I identify a rival God? God wants you and I to dismantle this thing. Let me give you a couple of straightforward things. Here's how simple this one is. Look at this. Only way to free ourselves from a false God is to turn back to the true God. Did you hear that? The only way to free ourselves from a false God is to turn back to the true God. If you're going to put off idols, you're gonna have to put on Christ. That's why with Gideon, the Lord didn't just say to him, hey, take away the false gods, idolatrous set up in your heart and in your life and in your father's backyard. He said, institute an altar to the Lord in its place. Something has to replace it. And, and, and here's the thing. If you uproot an idol and you fail to plant the love of God in its place, the idol will grow back. That's why we need not only to remove the idol, you make sure you set up an altar for the Lord. Do you know how many Christians try so hard with certain things that they find that are heart attachments? Because I want you to know something. The nature of idols is that they're narcotic because they want to make you dependent Right, You begin to depend on someone or something the way you should be depending on God. So they become a source in your life where you're leaning on Him. Now you need Him, so you're addicted. That's the nature of idols. But the Lord will not have another source in your life or my life. That's why if you're going to uproot an idol, any kind of idol that creeps into the heart... You need to build an altar for the Lord, otherwise the idol grows back. That's it. it will always grow back. Do you know how many Christians have an attachment to something and they genuinely, with all of their hearts, all of their hearts, go, Lord, I don't want this thing in my life. I don't want that kind of dependence. I oh, know it's wrong. I oh, know it's, it's not right in your eyes. That is not right. This relationship's not right. Or, 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 or the way that my heart is about, my, my career is not right. And, you know, and I'm not going to do it again. And you know, we, we try our best, but we fail. You know why? Because we've removed the idol, but we haven't set up the altar. That's, that's what Jesus taught. It, open up with me to the book. But Jesus is so much more straightforward about saying it. Book of Luke chapter 11, have a look at this. Book of Luke chapter 11, Jesus says that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. He finds none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And he finds it swept and put in order. That means it's unoccupied by anything else. The evil spirit leaves, but there in the house, the house is unoccupied. It has no active dwelling of anything or anyone. So the evil spirit takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first. See, if you remove an idol but don't replace it with the love of God, the idol will grow back again and it will be worse. That's what the Lord teaches. Now I've come to tell you this, let's land this thing. I've come to tell you this. If there is one thing that I know for sure, for sure, for sure, because I've seen it in Scripture over and over and I've seen it in my own life time and again, is that once you and I make a faith decision of obedience to God, God, you will not be top God, you will be my only God, that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in such a powerful way. See, in a... Same chapter that we read in verse 34, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered behind him and then there was Manasseh, Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulon and the rest of her tribes. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Gideon. As soon as an idol is dealt with, the Spirit of the Lord closed himself with Gideon. As a matter of fact, the literal translation of that verse says that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Himself with Gideon, not came upon Gideon, clothed Himself with Gideon. Gideon became saturated in the oil of the Holy Spirit. You and I would love that, wouldn't we? But, but that's what the Lord says, that once that the idol is demolished, True power returns to the believer. True authority returns to the believer. You know what I love? I love the fact that Gideon goes out. The revival that happened in his heart caused his father's revival. Joash caught fire. When they came and confronted Joash, Joash said, I'm on God's side, not on Baal's side. Let Baal fight for himself. All of a sudden, all of the countrymen are rallying behind Gideon because one person has put away the idol set up and erected an altar and then it caused the revival that we're looking for amen so here's the thing that I want to say to you and I'm just going to conclude it there you know some of us have been praying for breakthrough in particular situations for years and we've tried everything we've tried the Pentecostal rosary call it in, call it in, I'm calling it in with my Pentecostal, call it in, I'm calling in my husband somebody else has got him (laughs) it ain't working, it ain't working We're, we're praying for breakthrough, we feel like there's been long standing mountains Just like Gideon felt for seven years, seven years, he's in this cave threshing wheat in a wine press and the Midianites and the Amalekites have totally impoverished Israel year after year, harvest season after harvest season. There is nothing to collect because the enemy has totally stolen and destroyed. But the eighth year was going to be different. Because in the eighth year, you see, you see, Gideon didn't go out to fight. Gideon dealt with the rival God in his heart. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and destroyed the enemy. Can I prophesy over you in the name of Jesus the long standing mountains? The situation is not the stronghold, people are not the issue. The rival God in the heart is where it's at. God wants to give you great breakthrough. That could only happen when God is not top God, but the only God. And that's what God wants to do in the church. Uh, musicians, please join me. That's what God wants to do in the church. That's what God wants to do in your life and my life. God's not preaching infotainment. The word of the Lord comes because the Lord is intent on destroying the works of darkness and resurrecting the altar of God. God ain't playing games. Hear me, I genuinely just kind of praying into this last night, because I'm like, Lord, we're sick of churchianity, right? I think we all are. We're like, come on, Lord, have your way. What are you saying to us? What are you saying to me? What are you saying to us? And I feel the Lord saying this, the Lord's saying if the Lord, if my people will sacrifice their idols at my altar, they will inhale grace and exhale mission. You know what that means? It means today, if in all honesty, you say, you know what, there's a rival God. We all fight rival gods at different times. It's always going to be the idol or the altar. you are saying, no, 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 no. I know where I stand, I choose Jesus. And because I do, there shall be no rival God in my heart. Everything will take its proper order. I enthrone one. One is to have the preeminence. One is to have the throne not multiples they will not coexist side by side not in this heart but in this heart is the consecration seed to the one who is worthy today God no rival gods there shall be no gods before you I lay them down I burn them and sacrifice them before you You may even have to delete a contact off your phone. But not only do I burn them, I'm setting up an altar for the Lord. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm not going to live for anything. The cheap alternatives of Satan, I'm going to live for God. He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again.